This episode is brought to you by PASA Sustainable Agriculture. Register to attend PASA's 31st annual conference by January 28th at pasafarming.org conference. You're listening to season two of Fields, the podcast with Melissa Metric, Wythe Marshall, and Allie Whist. On Fields, we're bringing you the stories of people who are working in the world of urban agriculture. For money, for fun, for art, for justice, to feed the hungry, to green the city, or to uncover its history. In each episode of Fields, we'll delve into one kind of food that's grown in cities, one technology used to grow food, or one project that teaches us something about our relationship to farming and urban environments. Moreover, we'll investigate all the whys behind getting up in the morning and working as a farmer today. You don't need to be a farmer to enjoy this podcast, or even a foodie. We're going to tell fascinating stories and break down the realities and possible futures of urban farming to their elements, examining each in turn. Thank you so much for listening. Thanks again to Amy for being here. Um, And I'll start by just asking you to define future farmers as a sort of amalgamous artist, collective, agricultural provocateur. (laughs) Um, But maybe you can just tell us who you are and who Future Farmers is in your own words. My name is Amy Franceschini, and I'm uh, I'm an artist and the founder of Future Farmers. It's like this multi-headed monster um, that always comes together, um, doesn't use Google Docs, Somehow it's the it's your worst nightmare and your greatest uh, like things always work out. But no, I think um, what Future Farmers is really is a working group more than a collective, and it's it's a group of people who all have our independent practices. So I I'm also a graphic designer and I'm a professor in different art schools. Um, we have an architect who has an architectural practice, anthropologists who are teaching in in universities. Um, And we come together to kind of have a safe place where we can take risks, think in different ways that our institutions maybe don't allow us to, um, and and then bring kind of that knowledge back to our independence uh, projects. Um, So it's a a group that's been working. There's a core group of three of us who's been working together since 1995, Um, myself, Michael Swain, and um, Lode Franken. Thank you for that. It really does seem like a diverse group of practitioners. Um, And I really like how I've read it described in the past, which is, um, you know, a collective of people doing participatory participatory projects, creating spaces and experiences where the logic of a situation disappears, which I kind of love that phrase. I'm wondering if you could expound on that a little bit and maybe also start to get into some of the specific farming and agricultural related projects that you have. I mean, I think it that really does come from a farming, uh, a space of growing up on a farm where you can plan and plan and plan and then a storm comes and and all your plans are derailed and there's a spirit of improvisation in farming that is uh, very strong and was influential to me. So I grew up on an industrial farm in the San Joaquin Valley in uh, California. So I grew up on a farm in um, the San Joaquin Valley of California and my father was an industrial farmer, but still 
a small scale farmer. And if you, in, in today's terms, it was a small scale farmer. So that when there was a harvest, a lot of people helped each other. Like we shared harvesters, all the women cooked <laughs> um, and we rotated around to different farms. And so there was this um, very communal aspect to this industrial situation. But I think when a drought came or when a storm came, there was this kind of disruption where everybody had to think on their toes. Um, and that influenced me to, to try to think, how can we create spaces where people who might have different ideologies or politics can come together um, in a new way of thinking? And I think a certain spirit of disruption is needed um, for that to happen. And I think future, what we try to do is use kind of humor and absurdity and dare I say beauty <laughs> or something that um, draws you in which one of our collaborators says into a space of speechlessness where you don't have these words that are troubling so much of our conversations um, and that's when something new can happen when you kind of don't know <laughs> where to act new acts can can happen yeah and really kind of cut through the mirage of certainty, especially with farming. And as we look towards farming in the future with environmental disruption, I think it is good to kind of push the boundaries of certainty. Um, maybe you can tell us about flatbread society, land use, um, and, and specific projects that relate to grain farming. We're really interested in hearing about those. <laughs> One thing that we draw from farming is that it is a space of innovation. It has been um, you know, we've innovated tools that that um, we use to work the land, um, and innovation is something we often question in our work. Um, so, Flatbread Society was a project in Oslo, Norway, that was a permanent public art work in a new waterfront development, which was kind of contentious to come to a city you don't live in and to be part of this massive redevelopment of a waterfront. Um, the, the thing that drew us there was that we were asked to do something in a common area. So Norway has a very strong tradition of commons, which coming from the U.S. is so refreshing. You know, like it's in the national constitution that every human has the right to roam across the country. So wow. if you own public land or if you own private land, you have to let people walk through it. It's you, you can't fence you fence in your land you can put a fence in but people still have the right to cross um so there's a long tradition of that and it's interesting how i think sometimes our role as future farmers coming in as outsiders is we're just kind of there as a reminder of what people already have we become blind to what's closest to us and so we were quite excited about the commons and we wanted to find a way to really symbolize the commons in a material way um and so um, Flatbread Society was a working name that we came up with to do a long trajectory of a project. So it was a 10 year long project. And rather than like propose something and then just produce it, we, we asked for time to sit in a common area, one of these areas that was in this waterfront development and try to see what the desires of that place were and to respond to that. Um, in Norway, Everybody eats flatbread in the morning, Nor Norwegian nationals, Pakistani people, Iranian people, Somalian people are all eating a type of flatbread. And so we thought that would be an interesting currency between different cultures. Um, and flatbread in Norway is, was called a storage economy. 
Um, so in the olden days, a hundred years ago, they would actually mill and bake the flatbread. They'd harvest, mill, and bake the flatbread into these flat, dry discs and hold them in the roofs. So there's a hole in the middle, and they would store them in the roof, and they could store for up to 20 years. Um, wow. And we th- yeah. And we thought that was also beautiful um, in the midst of this waterfront development that was also involved skyscrapers that were banks, um, fancy uh, apartments, this kind of fast cyber culture, um, that this flatbread is actually like this very slow uh, tactile currency. So we proposed to um, start a farm there with a focus on ancient grains. And and that got inspired by um, the flatbread, of course. I'm looking at, you know, what, what are we using to make this flatbread? And in Norway, they use rye. Um, it was also this bread was this, uh, this flatbread was something people could really survive on through famine, through winters. Um, so we wanted something durable. And we found this um, farmer who had found an old, old uh, strain of rye. It was called a Finnish rye. Um, that was found in an old sauna that was used by this nomadic group of farmers called forest fins that were living in Norway until the end of the 1800s. And then they were pushed out for political reasons. But they were growing rye, and this was quite extraordinary. So this farmer um, knew that they dried their grains in their roofs of their saunas. And he found one of the saunas, and he got permission to take apart the roof and look for seeds. (laughs) That's incredible. Um, and he found nine grains between two boards, and they t- asked a church in the village if they could plant the seeds in their church garden to keep them in the same uh, area. And from those nine grains, seven grew, and these are very special rye. They're um, biennial, so they grow every two years. So the first year they grow, one seed grows kind of these 12 tufts of grass, and then that dies out and fertilizes the soil, and then the next year, 12 uh, stocks grow and on each stock is like a thousand seeds so you get like 12,000 seeds from one seed that you plant and from that this farmer Johan Sward um, and a few other grain farmers started growing these and getting them back into production and um, they they grow like three meters tall and um, they are super resilient to flood they taste really good they're uh, people who are gluten intolerant can eat them and they don't demand a lot of fertilizer. So um, we just thought this was a beautiful story. And we thought, let's start with forest fin grains. Um, it also has this long history connected to Norway, the history of Norway. Um, and as we started the project, more and more stories like this came out. Like this farmer in Denmark was like, oh, we found these old grains in a chest. Mm. We were driving our tractor one day and we hit something and we thought it was a rock, but it was this chest with these <laughs> old grains that hadn't been grown in 100 years. And we got them back into production. Do you want some? So the grains just started coming to us. And so we planted a field of um, seven different grains um, on this common land in Oslo to demonstrate um, this practice of old grains um, right in the heart of the city. So Flatbread Society was basically a public art project that was a a trajectory to try to make a urban farm and a, a community sp- gathering space. But we didn't know what form exactly it would take and how it would be run. So we installed ourselves temporarily for a year on this common site. 
we grew grains and then communities just started to come together and we got permission from the city to stay there permanently and build a structure called a bakehouse, which houses three different ovens to bake three different types of bread um, from different cultures. And then there's a grain field that surrounds it. So it's a, mm. it's a productive landscape, um, but it's taken on a life of its own. There's like different farmers there now and different projects. Um, and the city has actually funded a, a city farmer um, and created a program now. And it's, it's in its third year of um, hiring city farmers. Um, and then other cities in Norway have taken that on as well. So, um, so like a yeah. government appointed... A farmer for the city. Yeah. So it's actually the Norwegian Farmers Union we partnered with. Um, had never thought of a city farmer. And they actually are quite conservative. They didn't even use the word organic when we met them. Like they're they're kind of a kind of like 4-H in the US. It's more like training farmers to be managers. Um, but the but the president of the Oslo chapter was kind of fascinated about this connection between art and agriculture, like agriculture. <laughs> he kind of got that there could be some sort of um, synthesis in a city around um, the performance of, of the action, the visibility of it. Um, and he, so they did a test run for two years and we hired a farmer and now they train new farmers and have a, um, it's a two-year job that's continuous. Wow, that's yeah. amazing that that sort of position evolved in relationship to this work. Um, and, you know, going back to your description of some of the seeds, it sounds like you really uncovered some beautiful grains from the past, these kind of time capsules from farmers, and then were able to bring it to this urban space, you know, in a way that you say is kind of a performance that brings visibility to the ancient grains. And I'm kind of curious, what about agriculture and growing ancient grains to you is important in our discussion of urban public spaces and of the commons um, and if that's you know political at all I think anything you do in a I mean I think a city has a certain charge to it and especially um, where we were operating was really a stage for Oslo remaking itself Oslo was like it's a very or Norway is a very new country actually it's kind of like california like 100 years old and by developing this waterfront it was calling itself the oslo fjord city um it had a lot of attention um and also when you work within these kind of mega projects um and you get in a, at an early stage you do have some um, chance to kind of redirect the way things are designed like when we first got there we were meeting in this sky rise, just looking at 3D models uh, of this place that they imagined how it would be in 20 years. And we were like, there's no people there. <laughs> like, it's all figured out. Can we can we operate from the ground? And <laughs> and they were like, well, that's really messy and slow. And we're like, we have time, you know. Um, so I think for me, it's it's super interesting to work in the city. Um, in terms of farming, but for me, it's also super important to make a link to the farmers that are feeding the city because I don't think you can feed a city 
within city limits. I just think it's, um, for me, how what urban farming is, is more of a social project. It's getting people maybe their first taste of growing food or even just being together in a social s- situation. Um, but if you can then connect that to a peri-urban farming community that feeds the city, I think that's an interesting piece. And so in um, Oslo, we, we didn't have any enough soil on our site to grow food. So we had to get soil um, because in Norway, it's mostly rock. And instead of just getting soil, the university said, oh, we can build soil for you and give you free soil. We asked 72 farmers to bring soil from their farms and lay it on the ground um, more as a symbolic act. But it was really important to bring these 72 bodies who feed the city to the city, bring their soil, lay it down on the site and actually mix it all together into a new culture, which we named um, together that day when they brought the soil in. So we did this performance called a soil procession where we met at the edge of the city with all the farmers and then we brought the soil through the city to the waterfront. Um, and the king sent his farmer with his truck of nine tons of soil. And people came from the very north of Norway and brought this perm- peat, this beautiful peat soil. Uh, donkeys showed up, chickens showed up. I mean, it was kind of like we organized the 70 farmers, but we didn't know what else would show up. So um, we all marched through the city and created this stage and named it and wrote a declaration of land use together, actually. That's really a beautiful way to engage with the soil. I think a lot of people still would have viewed, even if you were planting an urban farm, they still would have viewed... um, moving that soil is a very utilitarian act. And um, you made it social, both in relationship to the urban public, but also the farmers and turn it into this sort of embodied cultural, perhaps even theatrical or ritual kind of engagement. Yeah, it was a beautiful day. (laughs) I was also curious, um, you know, I know that you said this work took a lot on a lot of consideration of seeds, both in sourcing them um, and in sort of the resulting grain and what happened with the seeds afterwards. And I'm just kind of curious if you can talk about what makes these grain seeds um, an important agent also um, or a, a type of archive or what they sort of what role they play in the project. So. Um, Johan Swart, who was our main first contact, um, who had gotten this finished rye back into production, um, said something really beautiful early on. And he was talking about the, he was referring to the Svalbard seed bank and how this is this kind of backup system, but that we also need to be taking these seeds and growing them every year so that they're adapting to climate change and adapting to soil change and adapting to even people's desires of what they want to eat because that drives actually a lot of what farmers grow. And so what he and a network of farmers are doing, are they actually, they're actually getting the seeds out of these seed banks, these gene banks, growing them and then sending them back so that they're updated. Because if they just sit in the Svalbard seed bank for 50 years and then something happens, they'll have a lot less chance of being, of growing. Like the percentage goes down every year. So he said to us, we don't need museums to preserve varieties. What we want to do is grow them. And it was a little bit of a slip of of Norwegian and English to say museums, because he meant we don't need these seed vaults. 
but we thought that was really beautiful because it, it relates to our practice where we're often invited by museums, future farmers, but we always push out of the museum into the mess of life. Um, and so we took that motto as a driving kind of force through the project. Um, and at the culmination of the project, after eight years, we had to leave. <laughs> Um, we took all the grains that we grew on a reverse migration back to the Fertile Crescent where seeds were first domesticated. And we didn't actually have the idea to plant these seeds and have them grow. We just wanted them to lead the way and unravel these, these stories of different grains along this route. And what we found in most of the communities that we met with was this similar drive to get the seeds out of the gene banks and into the ground. Um, and so we went to different communities in Wales and in England and in Belgium and in Spain. And the main concern was if there is any chance of shifting to a smaller scale um, farming framework, we don't really even have the seed stock to do that. So these farmers are really aiming to get these old grains into production again. Um, and the thing about these grains that... Um, I think is interesting and quite across the board is that these older grains fell out of production in the late 1800s, a lot of them. And then the green revolution happened. The grains were in, a lot of grains were industrialized and selected for, you know, higher yield, more starches, like these very spe specific traits. And so the other traits kind of fell out. And so they, they do evolve. Right. Um, and these, old grains didn't go through that pr process of selection. So they sort of have this kind of metabolic memory um, on, on how to deal with different weather, different soils. Um, so it's important to have them getting back into production and not being selected on a scale that our, our grain is at this point. Yeah, that's uh, really interesting of sort of First of all, the tension between the exhibition sort of museum archival space and practice. Um, and, you know, as an artist that's interested in social practice, it, this seems to tailor really well with your own goals. And I'm kind of curious, you know, about activating urban space to get these seeds back in the ground. Perhaps, you know, what's different growing them in Oslo than trying to regrow these ancient grains or I guess keep them sort of vitalized as we need them in the future what's different between doing that in a city and doing that in a more rural area and what um what connections do you think are important to be made in that waterfront in Oslo or in any city yeah I think it's really specific to each situation um because in Oslo there's still really a, a connection to this flat bread there's still a, a real connection even to farming because most of the people we met that were 50 grew up on a farm and moved to the city quite recently so there's still quite a connection and um, maybe even a romance about it um, I think on the seed journey that something that became really apparent and interesting was these new regional economies developing around bringing back the grains. So in England, there was a real strong tradition of brewers, bakers, and millers. So there was windmills or water mills, um, breweries, bakers, and then the farmers. And then because of industrialization, a lot of those windmills are fallow, the, you know, the, feeds are, the fields are fallow, and 
farmers have been getting these grains back in production. They need to mill them on a small scale. So the government has actually subsidized the um, renovation of these mills, which then starts to trigger a very local economy. Um, and that was interesting to see happening in Wales and in England. And here in Belgium, they're trying that's trying to do this in a very small region here as well. Um, and I think it's an interesting conversation about staying local and how you have to be really committed to a place and all the actors in that place. And there's a codependence going on. Um, whereas the city, yep. I think it's more about demonst dem demonstration and um, having like letting people have access to seeing this process and, and um, experiencing it and getting a taste of it. But I, um, it's not about production so much, I would say. Mm. But forging that whole ecology and, and having people in a city involved in that sort of, we can call it the flatbread ecology for now. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Um, That's the next project. This episode is brought to you by PASA Sustainable Agriculture. For 30 years, PASA's conference has served as a springboard for transformative food system change. PASA's 2022 conference features more than 30 virtual and 90 in-person sessions on farming and food systems, covering topics that include building community food webs, keeping seeds to preserve cultural traditions, protecting local watersheds, as well as production methods and business skills for food producers of all levels. Keynote speakers include Soulfire Farms' Leah Penniman, author of Farming While Black, Sarah Mock, author of Farm and Other Efforts, and Jessica Gordon Nemhard, author of Collective Courage, a History of African-American Cooperative Economic Thought and Practice. PASA's virtual pre-conference takes place January 4th through 28th. Register anytime to attend live or get recordings. You can also join PASA in Lancaster, Pennsylvania on February 10th through 12th for its in-person main conference comprehensive COVID safety measures will be in place. Learn more and register at pasafarming.org slash conference. That's P-A-S-A farming.org slash conference. What happened with the grains and if you were um, actually baking flatbread and sort of like how that um, played out in terms of feeding and eating in the city? Yeah. So, um, I mean, the bakehouse, we did a temporary version for one summer and it was so successful. Like people just came and used the ovens immediately and so many different types of people used it. Like sometimes it was just a birthday party. Sometimes it was like a climate science conference that wanted to have an after party. Sometimes it was uh, activists who were protecting the harbor or anti-GMO activists or... Um, migrant teens after school programs came and used this temporary site. And so after the end of this summer, we proposed to have a workshop where we brought some of these people together to imagine a permanent bakehouse and how would it work and even the function and form of it and an alternative economy, economy that could work around it. And um, it was a really nice workshop where we, we even brought in bankers who had worked around the alternative economy uh, historians, common law people. Um, and we created this physical continuum where we, we asked, is this structure completely open 24 hours a day or is it completely closed with one key holder? And it, within this continuum, you know, what could it look like and how could it function? Um, and so out of that came this idea to have basically a 
permanent version of this temporary version we did, but in the form of a boat, <laughs> this old Norwegian rescue boat that was still very present in the harbor. Um, and we needed someone to kind of run the ovens. And so our commissioner actually went to the Norwegian bakers union, <laughs> who knew, and the bakers need one of their mission is to train young bakers and to train people to bake. And so they are kind of the main base that operates out of it. I mean, tons of people operate out of it, but they, once a week, they're always there with the ovens running. You can bring your own dough or they bake a certain amount of loaves every week. And I think there's something nice about like this consist, just having at least one thing that's consistent there. And they source, um, all of the grain from the network of farmers we work with, the field does not produce enough to grow grains or to make bread. Um, the field is basically a place to get these seeds back in production and then to share these seeds more, more on like a educational um, basis. And also the group of farmers that's running the grain field are really mostly interested in how these grains build soil rather than deplete it. So there's a soil project going on um, with these grains as well. Um, and in terms of, uh, you know, production, I think there's a lot of knowledge production going on there in terms of people just even learning. You know, sometimes people ask, like, you can grow the stuff that we make bread with from this seed? You know, like, I think that's why having a farm in the city is interesting because it was kind of mind-blowing how many people didn't even know what a potato plant was, you know? <laughs> kids, kid, hipster kids would come by, and, what, are you, what are you pulling out of the ground? Potato. And they're like, oh, I didn't know it came out of the ground. Um, yeah, so that's how the bakehouse works. That's lovely. Oh, mm -hmm. I wish I could go visit there right now. <laughs> you know, you mentioned that some of these ancient grains, when you grow them, they actually help to rebuild the soil health. And earlier you had said they're biennial. I'm curious if you can tell us some other unique characteristics of the kinds of grains you've been growing and what so far you've, you've learned from them. Um, so in Belgium, when we stopped in Belgium on the seed journey, we were invited by this group who had heard about the seed journey, which was this sailing trip where we took the grains from Oslo to um, Turkey. And we got this email that said, we found this, you know, 500 year old grain in an excavation that we did of a church in this small village where Bruegel used to do his paintings. Um, wow. And they said, maybe you can take this seed on your seed journey. It could be your first artist in residence. <laughs> <laughs> we thought how beautiful to take the Bruegel grain with us on this trip. So we went um, to this small uh, area in Belgium called Poyota Land, which was where Bruegel painted a lot of his paintings of Flanders. And there was a water mill that had been restored, um, and they brought this Bruegel grain and um, we worked with some archaeologists and farmers who were researching this era when this grain was grown and at this time they think because they found not just one grain but several grains together they think that they growed th grew three grains together and it was a mix called mastelane and by it's kind of like the three sisters method in a way like by having those three different grains a couple things could happen if one failed the others might not fail and then there was also a um 
each one has a different effect of the soil and and different needs and they can feed in, feed into the soil um in a way that's not like depleting the soil um so it's called masterland that's one thing we saw that was quite interesting and then another thing we saw in um in london was a farmer named andrew forbes who was also he was loved by the geneticists in england um so I don't know if you know, but pretty much anyone, like if you and I wanted to ask a gene bank for some seeds, you'll, you can get them. They're just, you just have to pay the postage. Um, they ask you to send some back if you do grow them. So um, Andrew Forbes just gets them out of the <laughs> bank all the time. And he started planting them in Ruskin Park in London, like downtown London, a park. And he did it gorilla style. He just started planting them. Um and then people started to see it and ask, like, what are you doing? And he explained it. And people started to offer to volunteer. The park uh, thought it was great. They gave him money to start doing it above the board. And they were like, actually, we used to have a windmill here. Let's start to get the windmill back rolling. Um, but I think with the grains that Andrew was growing, um, something that came out of that was this relationship that Wales and England used to have. So farmers would send their seeds. Welsh farmers would send some seeds to England to be planted and English farmers would send some seeds to Wales to be farmed in case there was a storm or a flood in one of the countries, they'd have a backup system. And so on the seed journey, we took a seed from Andrew Forbes that was a Welsh seed that hadn't been back in Wales for a hundred years because they had never needed it. Um, and that seed was received um, through this art exhibition we did um, in Cardiff and got back into production. So I, I think that was just something interesting, maybe not about the traits of the seed themselves, but sort of the social, um, the cooperation that was going on. Um, mm. Yeah, so much of the time we focus on these really sort of objective genetic qualities or traits of the plant. But what you're elucidating is it's also about our ability and our ability to cooperate and participate together and grow in these ways that um, requires community and trust. And um, so that's really beautiful to know that it does require us in community with each other and in community with the grains. <laughs> yeah, I mean, some of the old farmers talked about the seeds as social media. Um, they said, this is my social media. And and it really resonated with me because it is true. Like all, they're always passing on their knowledge to each other. They're telling them, oh, this worked for me this year. And sharing the seeds that, that really worked one year um, with each other. And um, yeah, I mean, if um, seeds themselves or the grains can be a way of transferring information and in that way they are media mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I mean at this point they're we are a huge part of them you know like we've cultivated them um, so they're quite social in addition to the farmers have you talked with the seed bank like I'm picturing Svalbard specifically but in each country I mean when you talk to I don't know plant scientists geneticists um What's what's their take on this approach? Because everything you're saying sounds so dead on, and and I love this idea of rekindling, this idea of, of sharing and, and and socializing seeds that used to be, as you said, it's just it made a lot of sense and people just kind of did it, um, and and it's somehow gone by the wayside. 
and now, yeah, we have this museum of seeds, but is it apparent to scientists who work on this that there are other options? And is that something they're attentive to or you've, you've helped bring to their attention in any way? Yeah, geneticists who work in seed banks like in universities or the Millennium Seed Bank in England, every geneticist that we met with was like, they love these farmers because they don't have the people power or the space to grow them out. But of course, the market is still dominated by huge companies and there's not money to produce the seed stock, um, or maybe it's not a priority <laughs> to produce the seed stock um, of these older grains. So it's happening on very uh, small scale. But part of what we were hoping to do was to kind of animate this idea of getting these seeds in the hands of the many rather than the, the few. And it is, it, it is happening. <laughs> yeah, I was also curious um, about your role as an artist with the farmers and with the seed bank, um, both similarly in the response to that, but also to you, like this sort of poetic or aesthetic approach to grain farming and um, the role of artists in these projects going forward. It's a good question because I don't know that artists are always the greatest collaborators <laughs> with farmers, but I think it's, for me, I feel a real responsibility not to be doing, it's just important to take into consideration the time of the farmer because farmers don't have that much time and just to be, really be respectful of, of you know how we're working together. For us, I think what we are is a sort of amplifiers of their work because uh, often they don't have the time uh, for their voice to be heard or they don't even uh, maybe know that what they're doing is such a vital um, act and often people would thank us like thank you for giving us a, a stage uh, to, to have our voice be heard or even to be seen like we would take these you know we sailed many 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 miles to see one farmer in Denmark and he was like why did you come see me at? you know and then we take his story um to be presented within an exhibition that's seen by other people and other farmers that start to network with him and so I think for us the collaboration with um, cultural institutions is really important because they have the mechanisms to amplify through their media mm -hmm. <laughs> um through their communities through their um audiences and um it became clear that it was an important part of of building up the voices of these the farmers who don't have time or energy to do that yeah so you're bringing the culture piece of what they do back in a little bit um and yeah i think the visibility is really important and not just relegating farmers to again a utilitarian realm when we know that their role is so much more deeply embedded in um, culture and community. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm curious if you have any grain or seed-based projects on the horizon or what's next for the Flatbread Society? So it's taken on a lot of different, um, let's say, legs. So... Um, we visited all these different communities and one of them was this community in Belgium where we inherited the Bruegel grain. Um, and so we were invited back three years ago um, for this temporary public art project in that Poyota land, this Bruegel land. And it was a, 
project to celebrate 500 years of Bruegel, and it was um, temporary projects. And so we asked, rather than doing something temporary, if we could have find locate a piece of land that was fallow, that we could um, start to get these old grains back into production, especially this these farmers we met wanted to start to grow this mastelane tr- seed uh, combination. And so often, it's similar in San Francisco. We, when we wanted lands, you go to the Department of Public Lands and there's all of a sudden a lot of land sitting fallow. <laughs> it's surprising mm. if you ask for it, it shows up. But so here in Belgium, we were given a piece of land that was... Um, used as a staging site when this this train line was built. So it was quite compacted and not the greatest piece of land, but they said, you can use this land. Um, so in the first year, we planted these uh, ancient grains with um, a network of farmers who are bringing back these ancient grains. And so we planted, I think, 32 different varieties. Um, and that animated a lot of the local gene banks and farmers and people who are wanting to get these grains back into production. And that project goes on. So now it is a group of three people that we worked with in the first year who are running the the land mostly um, to bring back the life in the soil. So after this year we, that we grew these ancient grains, it became apparent that the soil was not like the greatest soil. And so now it's about the reparation of this um, soil through growing all different kinds of uh, crops, rotating crops through it until it's quite fertile. And it's already after three years gotten quite more fertile. Last year we grew buckwheat, an old grain of buckwheat. <laughs> um, we live on a canal, so there's some kayakers going by. Now, um, another project that's brewing is in uh, near Santander, Spain. So we spent the, the boat also went, the sea journey went to Santander and we. Um, from there, we took our grains on a seven-day hike through the Pyrenees or through the Picos de Europa mm. to trade seeds with shepherds who grow grains in the high altitudes. Wow. Um, and we brought a geneticist, or not a geneticist, but a microbial uh, ecologist from the University of Berkeley, California, with us on that um, journey. He's he wanted to go up in these high altitudes and actually um, get pollen from. Uh, or actually get honey from beekeepers because honey is a marker of um, pollen drift. So you can actually test the honey and see if there's genetically modified pollen in the honey. Um, Because one of his projects is to see like how far pollen drifts from genetically modified um, seeds. So we did this journey and we ran into a lot of um, farmers who are also growing corn in these areas. Um, and now um, there's a group that wants us to come back and do a project um, comparing the ancient grain growing in one valley to the ancient corn growing in another valley that's divided mm-hmm. by this Picos de Europa. Um, mm-hmm. So we're in a final round of a, of a grant to work for two years there um, based on these initial relationships we started on the sea journey. And well, that project is called The Garden of Bread. <laughs> the Garden of Bread. Yeah. In Santander? Yeah. yeah. So you guys have sort of become the go-to when people have ancient seeds they found in a chest or you know ancient grain growing somewhere. They know who to call now. I hope so. <laughs> it's really nice. We have received some crazy stories um, 
and we we have a collection of them now um, of various stories yeah that are about grains that were lost or that came in a prisoner's pocket from from um, Algeria through the mountains to France or like a lot of stories about people escaping and taking a few grains with them. Mm. Yeah, I was going to ask so much of this work is about the narrative history of these intertwined relationships between humans and grains. Um, and if there was any kind of publication or place for all of these amazing stories that you've collected to also live. Can you, can you make that happen? <laughs> <laughs> we have all the content. We just don't have the, we haven't focused on that actually, but a lot of people have asked us if we were going to do a book about sea journey, but, um, it's just Not another yet. project. Yeah. Well, I think it's important that you're working with the stories regardless um, and sort of bringing to life these varieties through um, the connections. Um, and you had said that one of the grains you were growing of the 23 varieties, this is kind of going back, but I just wanted to know, um, one of the varieties was buckwheat that you were growing mm-hmm. in that fallow land. What were some of the other ones? Wow. We grew, um, I mean, we grew like 20, 20 different varieties of winter wheats. Um, there was like different varieties of soft wheats. We grew, um, barley, oats, um, rye, um, spelt, um, pretty much any grain you can imagine except corn. We grew on that field. I could read one of the seed stories. That's kind of an extraordinary one. Oh, is that yeah. interesting? Please do. Okay, so this is uh, this is called the Vavilov barley, and so this was actually um, a barley that was grown in Norway until 1936, and then a man called Fridtjof Nansen, who was an explorer in Norway, also. Uh, environmentalist you could say he heard about this seed bank in st petersburg russia that was called the vavilov institute um, and so nikolai vavilov was this amazing famous seed saver who was trying to save seeds in the centers of diversity of the planet um, so he would go visit these places that had really diverse um, ecologies and bring the seeds to st petersburg to save them and so Fritjof Nansen wanted to take some of the great seed from Norway that was growing like the most north and put it in this seed bank. Um, but many years went by, so I'll just read you. Nikolai Vavilov collected more seeds from around the world than any other person in history. He was one of the first scientists to really listen to traditional farmers, peasant farmers, and why they felt seed diversity was important in their fields. During the siege of Leningrad in 1941, Vavilov was imprisoned by Stalin, where he starved to death. He became the main opponent of Stalin's favored scientist, Trofim Lysenko, for his defense of Mendelian theory. Just a few blocks away in the Vavilov Research Institute of Plant Industry, that's what it was called, Vavilov's staff scientists locked themselves into the seed bank to diligently protect his seeds. Over half a million people starved to death during the 28-month siege, while these 12 scientists filled their pockets with grains so that future generations would be able to grow food. 
When the Allied troops arrived at the seed bank, they found the emancipated bodies of the botanists lying next to untouched sacks of wheat and other edible seeds. This is a genetic legacy for which they paid their lives. Um, So we heard about this. And we wondered if any of the seeds that they saved were some of these seeds that Fritjof Nansen had brought. Um, so a friend of ours went, who lived uh, in St. Petersburg, she went and asked the scientist if some of that was saved. And indeed, some of that seed was the seeds that these scientists had saved. Um, so they sent them, sent it to us in Norway, and we got it back into production in the field in Oslo. And it was quite a, like, the media was really excited. It was this kind of bringing back of this Norway that once was. Um, so that's, we, every time we get a um, seed, we make an illustration. They're usually very abstract, but this is an illustration of the scientists with their seeds on the floor of the Babilov seed bank. And then we let her press these kind of abbreviated stories of the seeds and we show the seeds in an exhibition. So we do have printed matter but it's very kind of rarefied yeah beautiful black and white illustration to elucidate that story wow yeah i would definitely read that book if you just collected even (laughs) you know some some of the um ephemera basically from your exhibitions over the years um, mm. And just images of the plants. I mean, you know. Anyway, just throwing that out there. I'm sure some publishers would. Be <laughs> Let's interested. work on it together. Let's do it together. I need help. Just can't sure. do it alone. There's another story. This one was a favorite. Um, have you heard about the um, the Lykov family in Russia who escaped the Bol- from the Bolsheviks to the taiga? No. No. Okay. Please. So the, this is the um, this is the Lykov rye. So. Another um, beautiful haunting black and white illustration. <laughs> yeah, that's you'll see you'll get a better idea of what that is when I read the story. So it's, you can see there's some human figures there. Um, so in 1936, um, the life Lykovs, this family, escaped the Bolsheviks and they took the whole family deep into the Siberian taiga. Um, the only things they took with them were a handful of seeds a spinning wheel for um, wool, a loom, and a Bible. And they maintained their life in this harsh environment of the taiga. Um, They were isolated uh, for several years. They missed the introduction of television. They missed World War II. And they missed mankind's first steps on the moon. Although shrapnel from sending space vehicles to the moon fell um, where they lived. Um, as early as the 1950s, they noticed large stars moving across the sky, and they thought that people were sending messages to each other by launching fireballs. Only in 1978, when they were discovered by Russian geologists surveying the taiga, did the Lykovs learn that those fireballs were satellites. The Lykovs subsisted largely on produce from their sparse garden and whatever the forest had to offer. But during one winter in 1961, they were reduced to eating their clothes, which were made of hemp, and their bark, birch bark shoes. Um, the wife went without food this year and died. Um, and when the land thawed, there was one single rye grain that sprouted up in their garden. 
They built a fence around this one grain and took turns watching it as it grew up into a plant that could be uh, harvested and and have these grain have, and harvest those seeds from these grains. They guarded it day and night to make sure mice or squirrels didn't eat it. And this solitary spike of rye yielded 18 grains, and from this they rebuilt their crop and their livelihood. Um, so we went. We sent a group of high school students that go visit. There's one woman left of this family. She still lives there alone. Um, people bring her goats or or grains. She asks for goats or grains when you come visit her. So we brought. We asked this high school group to bring her grains, and we asked if we could have some of the, the rye that. Um, she had grown and she was so kind of struck by this gift. She said, I can't just give you grains. I need to give you some bigger gift. And so she wrote a letter saying, or they, they helped her write a letter to say like she would give us something in the future, but we haven't gotten any rye from her yet, but <laughs> um, we we're in touch with her, but that's just a beautiful story of this resilient, um, this story of resilience and this rye seed. Wow. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of an unbelievable tale. And again, I think we're used to hearing these stories from a really human centered perspective and don't always think of all the um, life, both plant and animal life that are really entangled and intertwined with our histories. Hmm. <laughs> yeah, I feel like um, I would also listen to your podcast, Amy, if you ever just started your <laughs> You know, you could start a rival podcast and I, I we just quit Fields. Uh, just listen to you talk about. Uh, I can't do it alone. <laughs> old varietals. Um, old varietals, yeah. Yeah, we, so, I mean, one question, I, I know we have to wrap up, but just quickly, if you had any real, you know, easy sort of low-hanging thoughts or just big high-level abstract takeaways, however you want to take it. But I, I do like to ask, you know, about people's visions for the future and, I mean, there's kind of two sides. There's sort of specific recommendations, like for people who are growing food. Um, probably most of the people listening to this are on the East Coast in the U.S., but hopefully well beyond. Um, you know, I mean, do you have sort of specific thoughts on on from all of your various amazing journeys and learnings, um, uh, practical advice or things that you wish people would sort of pay more attention to or do who, who aren't necessarily small-scale agroecological farmers or plant geneticists, et cetera, um, and then more broadly, you know, what would you like to see for sort of the, the food system? What What's possible realistically and, and how can we get there? Um, and, you know, we could, that's like a quick one minute answer, I'm sure. So <laughs> take it however you want. Take it however you want. I mean, first of all, I think we need a different secretary of agriculture in the United States. I'll say it loud and clear. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we need a different mechanism of governing the the agricultural system in the United States. It's it's so staid. Um, I think like on a really simple, low hanging level, just go put your hands in the soil once a week. It'll tell you what to do. (laughs) Um, I think know your local farmer. Um, One of the farmers said, oh, this is a great one. Um, it was a farmer at the New York, the Union Square Farmers Market. He was one of the first farmers there, and he had to really, like, educate people about organic food. Like, they thought it was toxic in the early days, or they thought it was, you know, not you weren't able to eat it. Now he doesn't use the word organic anymore because, of course, now organic, according to the USDA, you know, you have to, you do have to use chemicals on it. You have to bleach your lettuce. 
So he doesn't grow organic food anymore. And, and now he has to educate people that actually just know your farmer and you'll have more reliable food. And if you know the books on the shelf of the farmer and you agree with their politics, then you should buy the books from them. <laughs> um, so I always say, just know the books on your farmer's uh, shelf. Although I can't say I know the books on my farmer's shelf right now. <laughs> well, um, unless wife and Melissa have another question, um, I'll just ask where the best places for folks to follow your work and the work of future farmers. I would say that um, our address here in Ghent is 12 Zilberhof. You should just come by and have a tea. <laughs> um, or you can go to the website, futurefarmers.com. Wonderful. Thank you again so much for being with us and sharing these beautiful seed stories. Thanks to our brilliant guests. Fields theme music is by Sam Tyndall. Our amazing producing engineer at Heritage Radio is Liam Werner. Fields is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio and at Fields Podcast. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, and more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like. Tell your friends and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.